You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, and I rather doubt that I'm all that often turned on to a program topic or guest by a book review that summons up the names of quite as many teachers, friends, former Open Mind guests, as one I read recently by the New York Times brilliant critic Michiko Kakatani. Their names, Richard Hofstadter, Neil Postman, Cass Sunstein, and William F. Buckley. The book? The Backlash, Right-Wing Radicals, High-Def Hucksters, and Paranoid Politics in the Age of Obama. And its author, my guest today, Will Bunch, a senior writer at the Philadelphia News who shared a Pulitzer Prize for his spot news reporting when he worked at New York Newsday. Now, Ms. Kakutani writes about my guest and about the backlash in this way. The progressive journalist serves up his own anatomy of the Tea Party movement, that loose agglomeration of right-wing insurgents, libertarians, conservatives, evangelicals, survivalists, gun rights crusaders, anti-tax protesters, deficit hawks, anti-government zealots, militia members, Iron Randers, Limbo Ditto Heads, Glenn Beck fanatics, Bertha's Birches, and supporters of Sarah Palin and Ron Paul. And of course, recording this program in mid-October, Will Bunch and I can't know possibly now, what you know now about what this holy or unholy alliance will have brought about on Election Day 2010. But whatever it is, we would be foolish indeed to assume that this backlash will go away soon. And I would ask my guest to make his reporters surely well-informed, educated guess about its future impact on our lives political and otherwise. It's not going to go away. What impact will it have? No, absolutely not. It's not going away. And I think we're going to see it in a couple of ways. One, uh, obviously, as you said, we don't know uh, what the results are going to be on, on November. Uh, we can't talk now about what the results have been on November 2nd, 2010. Uh, but we know from reports that um, you know as many as 30 Tea Party-linked candidates are leading in their congressional races. We know that um, Quite possibly, uh, we will have senators uh, uh, in 2011, like Rand Paul and, and Sharon Angle, and um, they're going to be pursuing a radical agenda. You know, in the last in in, in the Congress that's just concluded uh, during Barack Obama's first two years as president, uh, we saw the Republicans really through the influence of the Tea Party and and through the fear of the Tea Party just wield dramatic influence over the. Uh, 41 Senate votes that the Republicans had, that they were able to block any kind of meaningful reform legislation on issues like immigration reform, uh, on climate change, which everybody expected was going to be tackled by this new Congress, and wasn't because people like John McCain, like Lindsey Graham, uh, were either being challenged by people on the right from the Tea Party, uh, or, or you know, and were and were so filled with fear that they might lose a primary or lose their seat, uh, you know, that we saw this gridlock that really. It'll slow Washington down. Um, uh, how that's how that's going to happen with increased Republican uh, representation in Congress in this new Congress, 
uh, is going to be something to see how President Obama is going to work, uh, you know, uh, with these new members of Congress when they've been elected basically, you know, promising no compromise, you know, or no, you know, their, their platforms have been completely anti-Obama. Uh, and so how he's going to work with this new, new group is, is, is hard to see. The other thing that I think is significant is, and what I found in my reporting for the book, The Backlash, is this whole movement really, uh, you know, rose up in, in opposition to Obama. So I think between now and, and through the summer of 2012, you're going to see an aggressive effort by the Tea Party to find somebody that they think can be their savior to get Barack Obama out of the presidency in the 2012 election. So, he, uh, so, so, so to think that, the, that we've seen the last of the Tea Party, uh, I, I think they're, they're just getting rolling on some level. Any guess about who that savior will be? Well, I mean, the one to watch, I think, obviously, is Sarah Palin. Um, uh, she's, she's somebody who clearly animates the Tea Party. Uh, she speaks their language. Um, she knows how to tap into their resentment of, of intellectual elites, their resentment of, of Hollywood, their resentment of the media. And, um, you know, and, and she's a very divisive figure, even within, even within the Republican Party and even within the Tea Party. Uh, you know, some people are very animated by her. Some people are... Um, uh, you know, don't think perhaps she's up to the job of the presidency. Um, I mean, to me, the question with Sarah Palin is, uh, does she really want to run for president? Does she really want to give up the income? I mean, one of the things that I found in my book is that she found it more appealing and more lucrative to be a, a media personality and a spokesperson making as much as $12 million a year writing books and going on TV than she found it to, to actually make policy as governor of Alaska. And uh, I think the same concerns might be, might be for president. I mean, I think, I think the Tea Party is very personality driven. I think they're looking for an exciting personality who I think they can be, who can be the anti-Obama. Um, you know, short of Palin, I think the people that are out there haven't excited people yet. So, so we'll see, it's gonna, be a, it's gonna be a long race, but I think, um, uh, you know, I think the Tea Party is gonna be looking for somebody who they think uh, you know, can restore their movement to the White House in, in 2013. Well, you use the phrase anti-Obama. Uh, what are you talking about here? Does the question of race that you hint at in your book, uh, you're never all that specific about it. Well, Do I, you I, mean to be? Uh, I think we live in an, in an interesting time where I think things have changed a lot since the 1960s and, and since the uh, era that, uh, that uh, Richard Hofstetter was initially writing about the paranoid style in American politics. I mean, at that time, you had a lot more overt racism. You had people, um, you know, who would tell pollsters, for example, that they didn't think a black man was qualified to be president of the United States. Uh, you know, today in, in, today in 2010 or 2011, you're not going to find many people who I think will say that. But I think, I think what I've noticed and what I write about a lot in the book is that people find these kind of related concerns. Uh, somebody came up with a great term for them. They call them para-racial issues because they're issues that make people think about the race of President Obama or, or make you think about racial issues without being overtly racial. And, and, and the two that really get the most attention are the, um, what people have come to call the birther theory, which is this notion that um, uh, Barack Obama was the story of his birth isn't isn't uh, right that he wasn't born in Hawaii that um, somehow he was born in Kenya or outside of the United States or or somehow there's some circumstance related to his birth that doesn't qualify him to be the president of the United States uh, you know and this is a theory that has been spreading on the internet since 2008 um, you had supposedly responsible media people like Lou Dobbs who used to be on CNN and and several hosts on the Fox News Channel who've voice this, you know, in front of their millions of viewers and given it legitimacy in the eyes of some people. Um, 
another related notion, I think it also came out of the 2008 campaign and, and kind of much to my surprise has only grown in, uh, uh, in numbers since Obama became president is this idea that, uh, that he's secretly a Muslim, that he's, that he's not a Christian, that, um, uh, you know, that all his life he's been a follower of the Muslim faith and he's subverted this. I think, uh, you know, in polls have shown that large numbers of Republicans and conservatives believe this and their numbers have grown since Obama became president. And I, and I think what it is, I think, I think a lot of it is uh, people's deeper uh, psychological unease perhaps with having an African-American president. And I think going back, even taking that a step back further, I think um, a lot of that is rooted in just kind of broader concern about cultural change in America, about about increasing multiculturalism in America. You know, we've seen we've seen the demographic studies. Um, you know, it's widely believed that by the year 2050 or somewhere around there, that um, whites will no longer be a majority in America. And I think um, you know, and, and we and we see signs of this in terms of immigration, which has been a subject of anxiety on the right for 10 years or more, uh, particularly in the, in the talk radio environment. And, um, <clears throat> and I, think, um, I think with the arrival of Obama in his campaign in 2008 and then with his election, I think that was kind of a jolt to a lot of these people who, who had these concerns, that, they, that their vision of America was, was a vision of America that was predominantly white, that would be predominantly Christian. Uh, I think there were other... Uh, aspects of social change, like for example, growing approval of gay marriage, would be one I would mention uh, that I think caused a lot of anxiety and unease among people, probably over the age, you know, particularly people over the age of fifty, particularly people who were um, uh, in kind of middle class areas in, in the so-called heartland of the country. And I think um, I think these are really really the reasons why you saw the Tea Party movement rise up so quickly in two thousand and nine. I think. Uh, you know, I think Obama was kind of the personification of this other that they were concerned about, whether it was Mexican immigrants. Um, you know, I think I think the Islamophobia that we've seen uh, in the summer of 2010 with people protesting new mosques, people protesting this mosque that, that would be near the Ground Zero site in Manhattan. Uh, you know, I, th I think all of this uh, has been fomented by a lot of the economic anxiety that we've had in the last couple of years. And I think... Um, uh, you know, I think a lot of it is focused on the White House and Obama. So. Well, I'm so fascinated by the um, by what you write about our friend Richard Hofstadter. Uh, first place, you say that these people want their country back, right. and that's what you've been saying here. Say the thing p people forget is that Hofstadter's words were supposed to be oddly reassuring while some Americans were alarmed at the arrival of the John Burt Society, the gist of Hofstadter's message in the 1960s, the anti-intellectualism in American life, the paranoid style in American politics, those phrases that he used. The gist of Hofstadter's message in the 1960s was that these people have always been here, and while the paranoid style is a fascinating historical case study, the Republic has never truly been threatened by these fringe groups. You seem to think now that we are threatened by these groups. I do. I think things have changed, and what's changed in the, in the 50 years since Hofstadter wrote that, or 45 years, uh, has been the media environment, frankly. Um, the media environment. Yeah, and I, I see that in two ways. I, I mean, the Internet, obviously, has been revolutionary, um, uh, you know, particularly in the last few years with with social networking and just uh, and tw Facebook and Twitter and the various ways that um, 
people can just interact so quickly from peer to peer. And what we see in, politically is that, um, you know, political information, you know, that, that used to take days to get out there can now spread in a matter of minutes. And uh, You mean some, agitation as well as information. Right, exactly. I mean, uh, it can be good information or it can be bad information. Um, uh, you know, this birther theory we can talk about, uh, you know, originally uh, went out through email blasts from people claiming to have information that Obama was not a citizen. Uh, and, and these emails are forwarded and people are posting them on their Facebook sites. And they spread rapidly. But um, the one thing that really concerns me even more, though, and, and that I focus on a lot in the book, uh, and, and it's part of the title of the book, this notion of the high-def huckster, uh, which is that um, uh, you know it's it's not just it's not just citizens spread using the internet to spread bad information, although there is that. But the other part of it is is again people uh, who work for large media companies um, uh, like the Fox News Channel, for example, which is owned, owned by News Corporation. Uh, who are getting big salaries and are well educated and uh, you know should know better to be responsible, but find find that engaging in some of these these conspiracy theories and, and some of this fear mongering, uh, you know, make no mistake, make no mistake. I mean, fear is a giant part of what's going on. You have a public that's very afraid, and you have people who are you know entertainers, manipulators of public opinion. I think know how to use fear to, to get ratings, to get profit, to get money. You know, Glenn, Glenn Beck is a, a big focus in my book. Um, he's somebody who, um, you know, used politics to reinvent himself from being a failed disc jockey 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, in kind of the perfect storm, he moved over to the Fox News Channel the same week that Obama became president, uh, in the same week that the stock market had plunged down to, I think, about 6,600 when people were really at their most. Uh, afraid, and um, you know, he's a very skilled um, entertainer who who can really emotionally connect with his audience, and he emotionally connected, I think, with their fear at that time, and uh, uh, you know, use that to, use that to work up excitement. Uh, uh, it's been an extremely profitable venture for him. Uh, he, he reportedly made thirty-two million dollars last year between uh, his various books, uh, insider packages speeches, uh, everything he sells based on his persona and his ability to connect with his audience. Um, his message is very muddled and, and at times it can be very dangerous. Well, you certainly uh, don't express any uh, good feelings about Beck and many of the others you include in the high def mm -hmm. category, but it's interesting to me that you, as you report the travels you've taken, the, the investigative reporting that you've done, mm -hmm. the visiting these different groups. You talk about respect. You talk about, particularly at the end of the book, that yeah. what is missing here, what these people who are tyrannized perhaps by the high def people, who are yeah. exploited perhaps by them, right. you're talking about a sense of respect for them that's missing. And I, I wish you'd, you'd develop that. Why use the word respect? Um, well, I, I, do think, I do think some of these people are being taken advantage of. You know, um, I mean, the middle class in this country has been crushed over the last uh, 30 years by, uh, by jobs going overseas, by, uh, I think, you know, bad policies that have been in favor of the rich, uh, you know, and, and by economics. Uh, I, 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 think it's an, I think it's an unfortunate quality of human nature that, that we've seen in this country time and time again that that a lot of these fears and anxieties that, that of economics uh, seem to be 
directed towards people below, below them on the economic scale, like we talked about, whether it's immigrants or, or whether it's people who are on welfare or receiving food stamps. You know, you know we, see, we see this uh, res resentment. And, you know, I, 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 think, I, I think when you talk about respect, I, mean, I think the way out of, out of the, out of the uh, problem is to uh, make things more productive for the middle class again. I mean, uh, you know, if, if unemployment continues to hover at 9 or 10 percent, we're going to continue to have, uh, you know, social, uh, social unrest and unease. Um, I, I found in doing my reporting that so many of the people that I interviewed um, were, had a lot of time, either because their jobs had been taken away from them in their, in their late 40s or their 50s, and they, they retired when they weren't ready to retire. Um, I mean, some of them were older and some of them were retirees. But I think um, I, what I found is I found a lot of people, uh, you know, who perhaps weren't able to contribute to a productive economy or society uh, the, way that they, the way they once would have been. Um, and in the meantime, they find themselves in, the, in this media bubble that I write about where uh, they're all listening to the same messages uh, that are being conveyed over Fox News. They're all listening to the same radio shows like Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity. Um, it gives them a form of solidarity, and, and I think... Uh, I think that maybe is a substitute for respect, but I, I... How much of this did you find is a um, function of the changed social status rather than the changed economy, rather than, rather than unemployment, the importance of uh, customs, patterns in this country uh, relating to uh, the place of women, uh, the place of young people, sexuality, etc. I, I found a lot of it. In fact, I, I think a lot of the, uh, a lot of the ideological um, policy stuff about about debt and getting government off people's backs, kind of kind of came secondary. That I think it was more more of these cultural reactions came first. Um, one one thing that I think is really powerful also is is just resentment of elites. You know, I mean, we live in a country where, uh, uh, you know, increasingly to be successful, you have to go to college, and yet. And yet, we also have a system in which college is not affordable or available to everybody. And uh, uh, you know, I've seen this whole system, uh, uh, you know, kind of building resentment. I think, you know, over, over the last 50 years, where I think I think people in the middle class who've been hurt by these decisions that have been made in corporate boardrooms or these decisions that have been made in Congress uh, are very angry and resentful towards elites. I mean, one thing I found, you know, a lot of the um, you know, I mean, I mean, the backlash against Obama isn't all because of race. Some of the backlash against Obama is because, you know, he went to Columbia and Harvard, and and and, and uh, you know, the feeling that the that these eggheads think they know all the answers in Washington or, or on Wall Street, and, and they didn't. And I think I think a lot of the anger I think a lot of the anger is because of that as well. So, to the degree that Hofstadter was right in saying this has happened before. Do you find any solace in that, knowing our history as well as you do? No, because I, I think uh, I, I think I think times have changed. You know, uh, you know, 2010 was a fascinating election year, and, and one of the things is to see the influence that somebody like a Glenn Beck, or, or frankly, in a, in a different way, um, you know, if you look at John Stewart and Stephen Colbert, the, the same thing, where they, you know, on, from a different angle, where they've been able to. Uh, you know, draw huge numbers of people to to a rally in, in D.C. We, we become we become a very entertainment oriented society, and uh, and I think the ability of entertainers uh, and people like that to to whip up dissent and uh, and 
and whip up a crowd is something that didn't exist in Hofstadter's time. You know? So you come back to our friend Neil Postman and yes. entertaining think, or amusing ourselves to death. Yeah, I, I can't stress the importance. You know, Neil Postman was a was a, a brilliant media professor uh, at NYU, and um, uh, you know, basically his theory is that uh, uh, while many people were concerned that. Uh, the biggest threat in the media would, would be censorship, kind of like a George Orwell 1984 situation. Uh, his, theory, his theory was that instead that uh, entertainment would, like, you said, like the title of his famous book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, that we, that, that we could be led away from constructive politics and, and constructive solutions to our problems as a society because we can be too easily distracted by mindless entertainment. And, um, I, I mean, to me, that was almost the hidden story of the 2010 election. I mean, the role of somebody like a Glenn Beck, who, um, you know, and, and, and I went to Glenn Beck's uh, August uh, 2010 rally on the National Mall, uh, uh, you know, which was two hours of, uh, you know, kind of talk about God and getting away from politics, and, and also two hours of promoting Glenn Beck and, and some of his friends, uh, you know, that, that draw a huge crowd of over 100,000 people were activists, uh, you know, I mean, we've come a long way, I think, from Martin Luther King's 1963 march on Washington when people were talking about jobs, they were talking about social justice, and, and people were actually pushing for, like, real change that would that make people's lives better. I, I, think, I think now, you know, we live in a political environment where people are very easily distracted and people are very easily, very easily uh, looking for, for entertainment rather than solutions. That, I mean, this is exactly what Neil Postman was writing about in the 1980s when, when he wrote Amusing Ourselves to Death. And I, I, think, I think it's a real threat to democracy that, that people, um, you know, can, can be, uh, you know, are looking for laughs rather than looking for solutions, you know. But you keep coming back to the media, and you really mean the, the newer media, don't you? Uh, the, the ability to communicate so rapidly. So what do we do? <laughs> Silence. Yeah. Well, well, it's tough. Like, like I said, I mean, I think, um, uh, I, I think, you know, I, th I think we've gotten away, we've gotten away from reason in our politics, and, we, and we've gotten away from uh, solution-oriented approaches. And uh, uh, I, I think, you know, I, I think the answer is, is is to move forward. You know? Yes, but you, you you've said we've frequently, perhaps, or in using Hofstadter, we've. We've, we've been there before, but what is different is that there is a little mechanism now, whether it is um, uh, the computer, the cell phone, the whatever, the new means of communications. You seem to be saying, and you seem to feel that Hofstadter would have uh, maybe noticed, that we can't turn back now as we did turn back. I mean, the, the know-nothingism of the past was handled in turn. There was a paranoid tradition, but we could move away from it at times. You seem to be saying uh, the game is over because of these new well, media. Well, yes, but you know, I mean, there, there could be more leadership. You know, you mentioned, you mentioned also William F. Buckley in, in, in your introduction, and I think, I think there's a very relevant example with that in that, um, uh, you know, in the 1960s when you saw the John Birch Society sort of rising up on the right, um, uh, which, which is really the movement that inspired Hofstetter to write about the paranoid style in American politics. Um, I, the reason, I mean, the reason the John Birch Society didn't become more powerful because the 1960s were certainly a tumultuous time of social unrest. But uh, you had you had leaders in the Republican Party, and William F. Buckley was 
perhaps the most prominent among them, uh, you know, working, working with Barry Goldwater, uh, who was somebody who was popular with the John Birch Society, and, and they agreed that this group was too extreme and too a threat, and, and, and leaders sought to marginalize this group. Um, you know, c compare that to the, way, to the way the leaders of the modern Republican Party have handled the Tea Party movement, um, uh, which has been, you know, welcomed with open arms by the leaders of, of the Senate and the House and, and, and the Republican National Committee, uh, has welcomed the Tea Party and some of its most extreme candidates and some of its most extreme ideas, whether it's people uh, like Sharon Angle in Nevada who talk about, quote, Second Amendment remedies to our problems, uh, or, or people like Rand Paul who, uh, uh, came out and said they wouldn't have supported parts of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, they're, they're not tamping these people down. They're, they're encouraging them. And I, th I, think, um, uh, I think courage is something, I mean, that's, I know that's an abstract quality, but I think, I think some courage by people who are in positions of authority and leadership, um, you know, and we just, we're just not seeing that. We, we're seeing a media environment uh, where people like Glenn Beck are totally driven you know, by the, by the need for ratings and not All to right. say responsible Let, let me stop you because yeah. we just have a minute yeah, sure. or so left. Yeah. Now, as a reporter, mm -hmm. not as a person who knows what should be yeah. done or who believes this should happen, what as a reporter do you believe is likely to happen in terms of leadership? Do you see it anywhere? I, I, I don't. I don't. I mean, I, I, I see a system where where people in both parties, I think, are more, are more motivated by what they think and they can best do to hold on to power. I mean, I think that's I think that's why you saw the GOP uh, so eagerly embracing the Tea Party uh, in the 2010 election, and 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 on the on the Democratic side, you saw uh, I think a, a lot of fear and a lot of running away during the 2010 election, where people, uh, you know, I think I think rather to confront the excesses of the Tea Party and the extreme rhetoric, I, I think. I think there was a, a running away. So, uh, uh, you know, I mean, things may have to get worse before they get better. I mean, it, perhaps at some point uh, things will get so bad that, that somebody will rise up and say enough is enough. But uh, we, we certainly did not see that in this election cycle. Will Bunch, I think the backlash is, as uh, Ms. Kakutani did, uh, thought the backlash is a fascinating book. And uh, I wish you luck with it, and thank you for coming on The Open Mind. Oh, thank you so much for having me on to talk about it. It was, it was a pleasure. Thanks. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. Meanwhile, as an old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit our Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind.